God where it says, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead him on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road towards the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. After leaving Succoth, they camped at Etham at the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near pi Hahirath between Migdol and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea, directly opposite Baal-Sephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have left the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots, along with all the other chariots of Egypt, with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites, who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pihahirath, opposite Baal-Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there was no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Thanks, Carl. You might want to uh, keep your Bibles open because we'll keep reading uh, from that passage a little bit later. But uh, let's, let's pray now. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us to see your greatness. Uh, Lord, that even though we weren't there to see the waters parted, that we might behold it with the eyes of faith I entrust you. And Lord, we pray that you would 
Help us to see your greater work in the Lord Jesus Christ uh, and beholding it with faith to trust you. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, Well, in the last few years, I think... Uh, if you pay any attention whatsoever to politics, and you might not anymore, you might be bored with that. Uh, but if you pay any attention, one word I think keeps coming up, and that is the word trust. People have described a crisis of trust uh, in the world and in uh, politics in uh, democratic countries. One article from before our last federal, federal election suggested that trust in the Australian political system was at its lowest level in 20 years. Uh, The erosion of trust has led to the rise of protest politics, so people disenchanted with the major political parties have voted in independence or stopped voting altogether, or in some countries they've even voted in joke parties and joke candidates. The erosion of trust is destroying, eating the heart out of democracy around the world. But the erosion of trust can be problematic in other places too. The erosion of trust in our personal relationships can be equally devastating. Uh, The inability to trust people can become like a cancer which destroys a relationship. Uh, Every moment is spent wondering whether the other person really means what they say or whether they'll do what they've said. So if in a marriage one person says, I love you, but the other person can't trust that for whatever reason, it's hard for that marriage to grow. And actually what happens in the end is it, is it begins to shrivel uh, and die. Trust needs in that situation to be re-established somehow, however that might be. But what happens when we lose our trust in God? The results, I think, can be similarly devastating. And these... Chapters in Exodus give us a picture of what that's like when people begin to doubt God and uh, when they fail to trust him. Israel's only just been delivered out of the hands of Egypt, but it quickly becomes apparent in this chapter that they're suffering from this crisis of trust, that God has delivered them, even though God has delivered them, they can't actually trust him with their whole heart. We pick up the story uh, today with the people of God. They've just left Egypt. They're on their way out. Pharaoh's finally let them go after the the ten plagues. And almost immediately, we're told that God doesn't take them by the shortest route that he could. The reason is given in verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God didn't lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. Why? For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God already recognises the weakness of his people and so takes them by a longer but safer route. He doesn't want them to turn back or to give up. It's already clear at this very early stage that God doesn't have the full confidence that his people will trust him, that they'll stick with him. And so in his grace and mercy, he takes them by an easier road. Uh, nevertheless, despite this kind of this doubt that's thrown up at the beginning of the chapter, as they leave Egypt, the people uh, fulfill at least one of their commitments. Uh, they take the bones of Joseph. Joseph, we're told, had made the Israelites swear a promise that when God finally brought them out of the land of Egypt, that they would take his bones with him. It was an expression of his trust in what God would do. We're being reminded of Joseph's confident hope that God would fulfill uh, what he had promised. So verse 19 tells us that Joseph had said, God will surely come to your aid and then you must 
carry my bones up with you from this place. So here at the beginning of this chapter, there's this doubt, but there's also this, this hope of, of Joseph confidently looking to the future and seeing with absolute certainty that God would do what he'd said. And finally, what Joseph hoped had come to pass, God's people are leaving Egypt and they're leaving Egypt under God's care and protection. And that's seen in this extraordinary manifestation of God's presence with the people in this um, uh, pillar of cloud which guides them on their way. Verse 21, by day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or by night. That is, the people are leaving Egypt and God's going with them. God's protecting them. God's guiding them. He's giving them light by night and he's giving them this shelter during the day. And God has a plan on top of that. He has a plan of how he's going to get his people to safety. Uh, At the beginning of chapter 14, God tells Moses what the Israelites are to do. The plan is to trick Pharaoh and the Egyptians and to make them think that the Israelites are confused and wandering around the, the, uh, the wilderness aimlessly. Through that, God says he'll harden Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh will decide to actually come after them. It's God's plan that Pharaoh will chase them down, but that God will win the victory, that God will gain the glory for himself. And that's exactly what happens. We see that unfolding. Pharaoh gathers his army and sets off after the Israelites. Everything is going exactly according to God's plan. And yet, that's not enough uh, for the people of God. They look up, we're told in verse 10, they see Pharaoh bearing down on them, and they're terrified and they cry out to God. But they don't cry out to God for help. They grumble and they say to Moses, what have you done? Verse 11, they said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Just take a moment to think about what is going on here. What the people of God are saying. They've been enslaved in Egypt for years. For for 400 years they've they've been um, waiting to, to... to be on their way to the promised land. They've been suffering at the hands of Pharaoh and his officials. God's shown this extraordinary power in bringing them out from under Pharaoh. He's performed these great miracles. He's, he's, uh, he's brought these plagues on Egypt. And now at the very first obstacle, the people are grizzling and complaining and wishing that they were back where they were. They were wishing that they were back under oppression and slavery. They're saying, we wish that God had never done any of this stuff that he'd done. We wish that he'd never set us free. Extraordinary, isn't it? Their lives were miserable. God's bringing them out. They've seen the power of God and they hit one snag and they think to themselves, well, what's the point? I want to be back in Egypt. They see Pharaoh uh, behind them. They see the sea in front of them blocking their path and they panic, panic and they blame God and they blame God's servant uh, Moses. It's, uh, it's terrible. Uh, and yet I think it's distressingly familiar. That is, I think so often, this is the pattern of our lives. 
Uh, So often we treat God in the same way. The situation gets tough and what happens is that we forget the good that God has done for us and we despair over our present situation and we we despair over the hope for the future. Uh, And we blame God and we accuse God of being unfaithful or of being untrustworthy and we say, I wish I was back over there. Uh, It can happen in all kinds of ways, I think, and it can happen over all kinds of issues. Our expectations in life aren't met, met in some way and we grumble and we complain against God. Our, our progress up through the ranks at work doesn't go uh, as we planned. Our, our business isn't, isn't uh, taking the path that we thought that it would. We get passed over for promotion and we grumble and we say, God, why don't you care about me? Why don't you care about my life? I would be, have been better dying in Egypt. Or our health is threatened You know, a serious illness takes hold of our lives and and we begin to wonder about what our future is. Uh, Or our health is compromised in some kind of way so that we recognise and we realise that we'll never be at that level that we've been at before. You know, we'll never be able to live our lives as as we've always lived them. No, now it will always, we'll always be tired, we'll always be sick, We'll always be slowed down, we'll always be weakened. Or we fail at something. Or we fail at an exam. We make a stupid mistake which costs us or others money. And I think sometimes we're at the greatest risk when actually we've really been living our lives for God and really investing ourselves in the kingdom of God and following Jesus because we're at risk of thinking to ourselves that God owes us something you know so we've given ourselves to God and to God's work or we've given our lives to to serving God to following Jesus and then something doesn't work out and we say to ourselves we say to God God what are you doing (laughs) I don't deserve this I expect more. I demand more. You know, you might plough yourself into into raising your children and and into bringing them up to know and and to love Jesus. We've prayed for Jacob and Caitlin this morning, haven't we, that they would be able to do that. You know, many people here have done that and then perhaps watch their children wander away. And the temptation is, isn't it, to ask the question, God, what are you doing? How could you let this happen? You owe me. I'd be better off dying in Egypt. Sometimes, sadly, we can act that way to God even over the smallest things, can't we? You know, we spilled dinner on the floor and we're so discouraged by it that we think, well, you know, God, why are you making my life so miserable? We invite people over and it goes, you know, it turns into into a catastrophe and we think to ourselves, God, what are you doing? Why is my life so miserable? There's no no problem in our lives, I think, so there's there's nothing too small that it can't manifest itself in, in this way that we become bitter and resentful towards God and we fail to trust that God has the future in his hands and our lives in his hands. 
We forget all the good that God has done and we blame God. Why are you so unkind? Why are you making me suffer so much? I would have been better off dying in Egypt. But all that undermines and devalues what God has done for us. God has made us for us a world. He's made us for him, to know him. And if we know Jesus, if we've come into a relationship with him, if we've entrusted our lives uh, to him, then we know God profoundly and intimately. God has come and made his home in us through the Holy Spirit. We've been reconciled to God through the death of his son. We've been bought at a price. But then there's a small hiccup in our lives and we completely devalue all that that God has done. All of that just becomes irrelevant. And yet, if to devalue what God uh, has done is bad enough um, and to think little of it, actually what the Israelites did was even worse, I think. You see, the most dangerous thing about what they did is that they began to wish that God had never intervened in their lives at all. That is, they, they began to wish that God had never acted to save and to deliver them. And it's at that point, I think, when it begins, we begin to cross over from, from a bad situation to actually a downright dangerous situation. I suspect that for the most part, our grumbling and our complaints against God come because we forget what God has done. We forget God's power. And that's wrong. It's terrible to undermine the value of what God has done in our lives and in history. But there is a, there's a worse kind of situation, I think. And that's when we don't just forget what God has done, but actually when you remember it and you still grumble and you still wish that you never experienced the grace and the kindness of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you begin to entertain the idea of forsaking what God has done in Jesus and wishing you could be back where you were. There's a terrifying line, uh, isn't it, uh, in the New Testament where uh, one of the writers says, remember Lot's wife. Why remember Lot's wife? Remember Lot's wife because God had saved them from Sodom as it was burning down. He saved them from evil, from death and destruction. And as they're running away, as they're they're heading towards the mountains to which God had told them to flee, Lot's wife looked back longingly to where she'd come from. She had hope and, 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 and joy in front of her and she looked back with longing to the life that she'd left behind. And that's exactly what the people of Israel had done. And yet, isn't it so distressing that the life that they were looking back longingly on was not a life of freedom and peace and joy and happiness, but a life of slavery? It shows the profound depth, I think, of our depravity, of our rejection of God and our rebellion against God, is that we'd actually rather, we we distrust God so much that we'd actually rather be back in slavery than to trust God that he'll be able to save us for an eternity with him. It's a terrible, terrible thing, isn't it? When life goes bad, uh, that we not, if we not only devalue the, 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 the good things that God has done, but we, but we look at the salvation that God has given us in Jesus Christ and we say to God, actually, God, I'm not sure that I want that anymore. Life is so bad, you're so embittered, you're so unable to trust God that you think, I don't want the gospel. 
Life is tough. You miss out on something that you had your heart set on. Something doesn't go to plan. You suffer. You feel as though God hasn't pulled through where he should have. You feel that God is keeping something from you. And you look at the cross. You remember the death of Jesus. You remember the forgiveness that comes through his suffering. You look at how God has redeemed you from slavery to sin. You see how he's brought you into his family and made you his child. You see all that. You see all the good that God has done in the gospel. And you say, I wish I didn't have it. I wish I was back in slavery. I wish I was back in the land that I'd come from. I wish that I was back in darkness. That, friends, I think, is as bad as it can get. Uh, and if you can call something the worst sin, worse than any other sin, then I think that that is it. To know the goodness of God, to have tasted forgiveness, uh, to have tasted the powers of the coming age, to have tasted the work of the Holy Spirit... And to wish that you'd never had it. Uh, and to wish to go back. That's a terrible thing. Uh, and it's the worst thing. To know all that, to know the goodness of God and the gospel, and to turn up your nose at it and to say, I wish I still was in my misery, to wish I'd ever known Jesus. That's a terrible thing to say. And it's a profound dishonor to the suffering of Jesus Christ. And let me say that if that's you and if you recognize that kind of reality in your life and that temptation and that desire in your life, then please realize that that is the most dangerous place that you can be. To turn back from the grace and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ is a terrible thing to do because there is no other way to know God, to be, to be saved for eternity than to, to, to persevere in knowing and loving Jesus. And trusting him. If you're in that place, if you're near to that place, then please turn back. Admit the horror of what you're thinking to God. Admit that with confidence, knowing that he's able to forgive you for that. And also able to uh, enable you to persevere and to pull you back from that precipice. So that's the, that's the situation of the Israelites. They're sandwiched between the sea and the Egyptians and they distrust God and they grumble against God and they wish they were back in Egypt. But I want to keep reading now from chapter 14 to see what God did to address that. That's their problem. How did God address it? Well, let's read from uh, chapter 14, verse 13. Moses answered the, uh, the people, uh, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. 
During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. Moses responds to the grumbling uh, and the doubts of the people by telling them to stand firm, by calling them to keep trusting God and to uh, reassure, and he reassures them that God will do what he's promised. He says in verse 14, the Lord will fight for you. You just need to be still. You just need to trust him. For his part, God uh, tells Moses just to get on with it. Verse 15, why are you crying out to me? Tell them to move on. That is, God's becoming impatient with these people, with these faithless people, and Moses should just get on with doing what God is planning to do. So Moses stretches out his hand over the water uh, to divide the, the sea, and all through the night this wind comes, it pushes, pushes the water back so that the ground is dry. Uh, and not only that, the angel of God who's been with them in this uh, uh, pillar of cloud, he goes behind the Israelites between them and the Egyptians, so that all through the night they're kept safe. They're protected. And then finally, the people walk through between these two walls of water, one on their left and one on their right. They walk through on dry ground, and once they're through, the Egyptians pursue them. But God throws that army into confusion. He jams the wheels of their chariots. And finally, he tells Moses to raise his hands again over the sea, and the sea sweeps back over them, and the Egyptians are drowned. And not a single one of that whole army, we're told, survived. It's a comprehensive victory. It's a comprehensive deliverance. And, and in verse 29, we get this amazing contrast of the two sides. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with the wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. And, the, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. This army that they had so desperately feared that they couldn't trust God, uh, that God would deliver them from, there they are, they're lying dead uh, on the shore. Despite their doubts, despite their complaints, God had done what he'd said. He, he'd promised it and he'd done it. He'd protected his people from the armies of Pharaoh and Egypt. What God wanted his people to know and what he wants us to know is that God is really able to do what he says. Despite our doubts, despite our inability to trust, God is really able to do what he says. He's more powerful than the sea. He's more powerful than the environment. God's more powerful than the armies of Egypt. Uh, there's no barrier that can stand in front of God's people that's impassable. There's no obstacle that's, that's impenetrable. That's spectacularly clear, I think, in this, in this account in Exodus. It's an extraordinary miracle to God to part the waters of the sea and the people to walk through on dry ground. But it's even more clear that God is 
strong and powerful over everything in the world, that's even more clear for us, for those of us who've read and heard of the life and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus healed the sick, he fed the hungry, he raised the dead, he calmed the storm, he defeated Satan, our great accuser. He, he defeated sin and judgment, he defeated temptation, he wiped away our guilt, he conquered death and delivered life and peace to all those who entrust themselves to him. It's hard to think of anything left which Jesus didn't conquer, which Jesus didn't win the victory over. And that's because there isn't anything left which Jesus hadn't won the victory over. Jesus has done it all. He's defeated everything. And yet, sadly, what happened in Exodus in the inability of the people to trust God is not the first time or the last time that God's people will grumble against God. And it happens, it fundamentally it happens because we can't trust God and we can't trust God's power. We can't trust God to do what he's promised. But if we are to be freed from grumbling. If we, are to be, if we are to protect ourselves from abandoning the gospel, then we need to take the lesson uh, that God showed his people here. We need to keep reminding ourselves of the mighty hand of God and what the mighty hand of God has accomplished. We need to remind ourselves that God's power is greater than our fears and greater than our weaknesses, greater than the obstacles uh, that we face. So we need to think to ourselves, well, what is it that I most fear? Oh, what are the things, what are the other things? Not just what I most fear, but what are the things that I fear? Think about those things. Imagine what they are. What, what, what are they? You know, think, think about that now. Whatever that fear is, God is greater than that fear. There's, there's nothing that, that can happen to you that can take you from the loving embrace of God. It might be, your fear might be that God won't forgive you. Your fear might be the fear of judgment. Your fear might be the fear that you're not good enough. Uh, it might be the fear of death. Your fear might be that you're not strong enough to, to live out this life. If you entrust your life to Jesus then the good news is that you're safe in the hands of God. That doesn't mean that bad things won't happen to you, but it does mean that when bad things happen, when the armies of Egypt are bearing down on you, it means you're safe in the hands of God. Safe in the loving embrace of God in Christ Jesus. But there are other fears, aren't there, too? Maybe not fears about salvation, but just kind of life fears. Fear of failure. Fear of loss. Fear of tomorrow and what it will hold. Fear of evangelism. And even in those fears, we need to remind ourselves that God is bigger than what it is that we are afraid of. Because actually those little fears can grow into big fears. And those little fears, over time, weaken our trust in God and his power. And those little fears train us to doubt God. So that when the big things come, we 
we don't have the resources to keep trusting God. They train us to doubt God and they train us to grumble against God. So what we need to keep doing is to keep looking back to the mighty hand of God. We need to keep looking back and reminding ourselves of what God has done and trusting God. We need to keep looking back to events like the Exodus and see that God did it. The people felt trapped. They grumbled against God, but God showed that he could do it. And we need to look back to them, most of all, to the life and the ministry and the, and, and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, where God has shown most clearly that he can rescue us. We need to press those truths to our heart every day so that we wouldn't doubt God and look back and turn away from God. So the people doubted God. They doubted that he could save them. They wanted to go back, but God came through and showed them his power. Uh, and when the Israelites see that, it changes their perspective on God. Look at the verse, final verse of chapter 14. It says, And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. They were threatened by Pharaoh and his army. They doubted God. They'd grumbled against him, but now they've seen the power of God, seen God parting the sea, and finally the people have moved from doubt and unbelief to trust and to, and to the fear of God. We're told that they feared God and put their trust in him. To fear God doesn't mean to be terrified of God, but neither does it, does it just mean to kind of trust him. To fear God means that we recognize that God is powerful, that he's to be honoured and revered and respected. That is, we're not to take him for granted or to treat him with contempt. We're certainly not to grumble against him. But to fear God does also mean that we trust him. That is, it's a kind of a reverent trust. It's an awe-inspired trust. Uh, I've, I've, used, I've mentioned this before, I'll say it again. I think C.S. Lewis gets this idea so well in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe when Lucy is talking to one of the beavers and, uh, and the beaver says, oh, you know, by the way, Aslan is a lion. Uh, he's a great, you know, it's the great king of the land, but he's also a lion. And, and Lucy goes, a lion? Is, you know, is this guy safe? And the beaver goes, who said anything about safe? He's not safe, but he's good. In that moment, I think, C.S. Lewis captures exactly what it means when it says here that the people of Israel feared and trusted God. God's not safe, but he's good. He's an awesome God. He sent, he sent the plagues on Egypt. The people who refused, after all those opportunities that he'd given, him, given them, they, they refused to, 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 trust, to trust him and to turn to him. He sent those plagues. He's an awesome God. But he is a God who can be trusted as well. A God who's safe. A God who can be approached with confidence through Jesus Christ. A God who calls us into his family and makes us his children. The people of God have grumbled against God, but they saw God's salvation and they moved from doubt and unbelief to fear and trust. And I think that that presents us all these years later with a similar challenge and a similar question. That is, having seen the power of God in this story, 
and in the life of Jesus, uh, and even in the world around us, how will you respond? Will you respond with grumbling and doubt? Or will you respond with fear and trust? To experience the saving power of God requires no great power of our own. It requires... It doesn't require us to part the sea. We can't do that. Uh, It doesn't require us to earn God's forgiveness because we can't do that either. Only God can forgive us. It's a gift that God has to give. Uh, And God doesn't require us to raise ourselves from the dead. We can't do that either. Experiencing the saving power of God requires no great power of our own. All we need to do is to recognize the power of God. And the promises of God, which are fulfilled in Jesus, all we need to do is to recognize that Jesus is God's servant, like Moses was God's servant, leading the people through the water. Jesus is the one who leads us through the water and into the loving arms of God. We need no great power. We just need faith enough to trust Jesus when he says, follow me. And he can part the waters that stand in front of us. We can overcome the power of death and the judgment of God, the condemnation of our sin. He can overcome the power of sin which continues to live in our lives. And like Moses at the edge of the sea, he can hold out his hand and push it all away. It requires no great power from us, but just trust to throw in our lot with Jesus Christ. So that's my question for you this morning. It's a question that God has for us all this morning. Will you grumble and complain and wish you were back where you were? Or will you trust God in Jesus Christ to part the waters? and to lead us through into the loving arms of God. Let me pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a powerful God, an awesome God, who made us, who made this world, who made us for yourself. But Lord, we thank you too that you're a good God, a God who keeps his promises, a God who overcomes evil and rebellion, a God who overcomes our sin and our condemnation. And Lord, we want to confess that all of us are people prone to doubt and to distrust. But Lord, we ask that you would give us each faith enough Faith faith the size of a grain of mustard. Faith enough to throw our lot in with Jesus. And to persevere, persevere there through all our lives. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.